Yeah. You hear that bass line. And you know what that means. You hear those soaring vocals. And you know what that means. Oh, I know what it means. You know what it means? <laughs> Two guys in here with pants off. <laughs> That's what it means. One with a, one with a boner. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the... Gentlemen, Dojo! Oh, yeah. Feeling good, Steve. Feeling good. So good to be back. Yeah, we're excited. We're excited about today. Well, we're missing somebody. We're missing uh, one of our senseis. Didn't even know. Didn't even notice? Well, there's an empty chair here, Steve. Sensei Patrick... (laughs) Sensei. Sensei Patrick Keene is off doing a corporate gig. Yep. Uh, But he'll be back. He'll be back. He's here in spirit. Yep. Uh, his so headshots, his headshots up on the wall of him uh, breaking through fifteen bricks. He literally just booked that corporate gig a couple weeks ago, which is great because now he had something on the calendar this year. Yeah, so so excited. Well, we're, we're ready to rock and roll. We'll miss him. Yeah, yeah, kind of. Well, listen, we'll miss his blanket statement. <laughs> His, In some way, shape, or form. His tangents that don't don't go anywhere. <laughs> well, no, I will ask our guest lack of questions. if he announced his candidacy on SNL randomly throughout the interview. Do you go by Pat or Patrick? <laughs> oh, God. Okay. That'll come up in a future one. Well, we are excited, Stephen. Very excited. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm pretty excited show. about today's show. Yeah, yeah. Uh, as someone who dabbles in identity comedy... I guess you could say uh, he's certainly made a career of doing it. Yeah, yeah. What, what's your comedy background? Because you said comedy, so I don't... I don't know. I have four-hour specials. You could go back and, and do your own research. I, I've lived it, so I don't need to see it. <laughs> How about you? And when you look across this table and you see somebody with no specials that is making the same amount of money for this podcast as you, uh, is that irritating or are you okay with it? <laughs> I just wonder, what was it like to do the same set... On live at Gotham. On live at Gotham twice. I, that's the ballsiest thing I've I've ever heard. Com- I've never heard a comedian do the same set on the You've same. You've seen TV this show guy twice. at live at Gotham. Yeah. Unbelievable. Never even referenced. Never even referenced asking them. Hey, is it okay to do the same set? Because I didn't want to hear the answer. Unreal. <laughs> uh, folks, keep the ratings and reviews coming in. Yes, absolutely. We love that. And make sure to post your rating and review at iTunes, SoundCloud, and we'll get you a T-shirt. Here we go. Our guest for today, very, very excited. So glad he is joining us. And we got him on the heels of his Emmy win for his CNN show. Love this guy. I've known Either him back clapping? since I started. Oh, I have an inter- finished introduction. Oh, okay. Jeez, well, I've, known him, I've known him back from my days working in stand-up in San Francisco. He still lives up in the Bay Area with his beautiful wife and kids. How about a round of applause for our guest today, host of CNN's United Shades of America, Emmy Award winner, W. Kamau Bell. How about a round oh. of applause right there? <laughs> yes. Soon to be working at Rooster Tea Feathers in ah, Sunnyvale. There it is. There it is. <laughs> I was like, Gary can't say all that nice stuff and just There's let it the- lie. <laughs> Congrats on the Emmy. Congrats. We are so happy for you. I know it's pretty crazy. There, this is this is a rare time in life. There's no downside to something that's good. Like it's actually like no, it's just good. You know, I was not expecting it. Did not have it in a dream journal or anything. So the, the show, the show, obviously, it, it's it's fascinating because you know, I personally just view you, uh, you know, through the through the comedy scope, I guess, of identity comedy. Is that fair to say? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that when people talk, when people on the right talk about how, why is it all guys 
always going to be about identity politics. I'm like, that's what I do. <laughs> like, I feel yeah. like I, I'm not afraid to uh, say that I'm a big fan of identity politics, and that you know, I'm not, I'm not I'm just that. I think that in America, identity has been defined through a pretty narrow lens, and so I think that those of us who don't want to define that way have to be loud about it. Well, I, I appreciate the show, and I think that there's there's a genuine warmth and heart that comes from you in terms of. Uh, you know, bridging the gap sometimes with with, with a lot of these episodes, but th- the one that was promoted, obviously, the, the first one, I believe it was, was you at a KKK rally. I mean, is that one of those things where you're a guy starting off stand-up in San Francisco, and is was there a moment when you're standing there where you're, you're just like, how the fuck did I get here? <laughs> I mean, that's, that's crazy that you, I mean, it's courageous that you did it, but it, it's got to be one of the, did that flicker through your head at some point? I mean, it's funny. I find I, what I've learned about my career, especially in the last 10 years, is that it only is going well if I'm thinking, how the fuck did I get here? <laughs> <laughs> like if, if, I'm, if I feel like it's like, oh, this is what everybody does, then it's not going to work out. If I'm like, oh, this is what comics are supposed to do, then it's not going to work out. But when I'm in places where I'm like, this doesn't make any sense, I'm like, oh, then stay here longer. Do more of this. <laughs> What was what was it you personally you know shocked shocked you about especially that particular episode because I think you know that's as extreme as it gets. What what was it that you got out of it when the when the cameras are done rolling? You you know the dust finally settles. What is it you gathered from from meeting and talking to these guys that belong to a vile hate group? I mean, you know, the the fear is real. Like as much as you know, we we I'm a comedian. I went there and filmed the CNN every night. We had to sleep in the town. Like where the clan was. <laughs> oh wow! And so we actually had to hire. We decided to hire an extra security. We had twenty-four hour security. Like we decided that the guy we had had to sleep sometimes. So we yeah. hired another guy who stayed up all night. And nothing happened, but the fear was certainly real. And you know, we were at one point we were doing like they wanted me like the 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 showrunner had me like walking through the streets at night. And there was this barbershop we heard was owned by a clan member. And there's a huge Confederate flag out in front of it. And he's like, hey, we're walking this right, you know, just for B-roll. He's like, get closer, get closer. And his moment of like, dude, I could die. <laughs> Is that going to enter your mind at all? And but we like, need the nope. shot. <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah, and that's why he doesn't work on the show anymore. But, uh, I, I didn't realize yeah. a clan member owned a great clips. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess the franchise is right. Yeah, you, got, you got to have a day job. You can't just, you know, Come on. Until, until recently, that clan thing didn't pay very well. I do want to ask you, given the current state of you know, sports seem to be the one refuge where I think the general public could get away and escape not only politics but race. And at times, of course, races, there have been lightning rods, obviously, like Jackie Robinson. But but lately, what's come of lately, what is your take on kneeling uh, during or not even showing up for the anthem? I mean, I think that it's it's silly for us to think that 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 the playing of the national anthem before before uh, like any sort of, you know, professional sport contest or anything means anything other than this is just something we've done. Mm-hmm. There's nothing about it that is inherently meaningful. It's just now a lot of people put meaning into it, but that's for you to do that. But the idea that 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 thing somehow that how you how you spend that two minutes means something about you know that if you don't stand stock still for those two minutes, that it somehow means you're disrespectful of this country is ridiculous. Uh, you know, the, a lot of people don't realize this. First of all, the NFL. It wasn't until 2009 that players had to stand during the anthem. Like that just got 
that just got that just happened in 2009. Right, and because the it, government was was promoting it and giving the NFL yeah, yeah, money and the doing NFL the flyovers money. with the bombers and stuff. And yeah. then it wasn't even a part of sports until like in the Wrigley Field, like, I think it was the Cubs game. I'm pretty sure somebody's have to Google this. Like they used it as a way to get people excited before the game started. And that's how it entered sports in general. It was a way to get people standing and, and cheering before like before baseball started. And it, and it caught off there and then it went around the country. So the idea that this is somehow sacrosanct, I think, is ridiculous. And I think that, you know, the idea that we also we use sports as a way to escape. Yes. But sports is also consistently been political you know when you ask people who's who's the greatest boxer of all time people say muhammad ali well i would say most of that isn't about what he did in the ring you know, right a, right a, a big part of it is who he, is what he represents and certainly that's political well his stance during the vietnam war the fact that he you know no that, that he took a very Asians, unpopular stance yeah yeah he yeah, took, he, yeah and then eventually the world came around to go oh or the, the country came around and go oh no that's actually he was right about that do you this is I th- I think you know and I I definitely understand both sides coming from you know again it was like what you were saying how some people view things differently and I I definitely am for one that I believe in kneeling I believe in black lives matter I believe in you know making a stance I believe in that and I also feel like the free speech a lot of the what you're seeing from a lot of veterans saying hey you know, the reason I fought overseas is so that these men and women can choose to use the free speech anytime that they want. So I think there is a, a strong support for it. Um, the one thing I did want to, oh God, I, I, I like completely lost my train of thought now. Let me, I, let me, <laughs> let me just jump back in. I, yeah. I wanted to ask Kamal before we jump to that. Yeah. yeah. Sub, if, if he found who to be bigger scumbags, the Klansmen or comedy club owners? <laughs> if you, <laughs> if oh, you had to pick. Wow. By a mile, it's comedy club. It's not even close. It's not. The, the Klansman will bonus you. Well, yeah, also, the Klansman didn't give me didn't go didn't give me notes on my act. You <laughs> the, Klansman, the Klansman didn't insist they open for me. Can we get your email address? Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it's interesting because I just want to back up just a little bit, and I, then I know Steve will jump back in. But I I just want to back up a little bit because when we were in San Francisco. And that's how I met you. And, you know, we did a bunch of shows together. You know, you still you stayed in San Francisco, developing, getting better, all this other stuff. And then you did your one man show, The Bell Curve, correct? Yeah. Yeah. And, and actually, it's the 10 year anniversary of that this, right now. Wow. Actually. And that's really kind of what gave you the jump, right? Because you brought that show down to L.A. You showcased it for Chris Rock. And that was kind of the next level for you. Yeah, no, with, we without that, none of, you know, without that, I'm still calling you for uh, opening gigs. <laughs> wow. Yeah, call- no, they- That's a sad <laughs> phone call. That's a yeah, real please. sad phone call. <laughs> <laughs> We're all yeah. working at Flappers in Burbank. <laughs> exactly. I'm still, yeah. I mean, yeah, the, the, I just, at some point, I decided that, like, I was clearly, I felt like I wasn't making any forward progress. And again, by, like, standing in the back of the punchline and waiting for, Hollywood to come into town and do auditions and I'd done Montreal and that didn't go well. And I did, you know, I did like, I hadn't done a lot of TV sets. I did premium blend. And there was just a sense of like, I knew I didn't want to move to LA and just start auditioning for stuff. Cause I right. wasn't an actor. And so I was like, well, I have to figure something else out. And I, at the same time I was doing standup, I was working with people in like the solo performance, one person show community uh, helping. Cause as a comic, I could like help them get their things funnier or better or whatever. And so then I was like, why don't I just write one of these shows? But I knew I didn't want to write the typical, one person show about 
I was born in a river. You know? <laughs> <laughs> like I, I, I want to still do. I want to still use the, the the tools of stand-up I have, but I want to use them in a different way, and I want to make it multimedia. I mean, at the time, I was like, basically, my version of The Daily Show is how I framed it at the time. Like, I want to do the things that I see Jon Stewart doing, but I'll do it in black box theaters. And yeah, I did it for a couple years, and then actually, Chris Rock came to it without me knowing. That was the big thing. Oh, wow. At UCB Theater in New York. I had heard that he thought I was funny through a guy, but I didn't know what that meant. And then he just showed up. Like at the end of the show, he walked backstage and I didn't know he was there at the UCB theater. Yeah. So, and then he was like, and he was very clear about like, I want to help you get a TV show. Wow. Yeah. And, and, you know, you go, whatever, whatever, Chris, you know, we hear this stuff from people all the time. I'll help you. You can blah, blah, blah. But he was very clear. I want to help. And he did like, he, he actually, there's no TV show without Chris Rock. He, he, we did a pilot. He put money in the pilot. He actually went, he's like, I went to HBO, but they got Bill Maher. They don't want another political show right now. So I'll go meet with FX. And I was like, okay. And he's like, all right, I went and met with John Langraff. They're, they're going to give you a call and give you a show. And I was like, wow. Well, it, it, I mean, it took a series of months, but it happened that way over a series of months. But, like, it but was like, he yeah. pitched the show w- without you? Show. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, over lunch. Wow. Like the, first time I met, the first time I met John Langraff, I still thought I was auditioning. But as soon as he walked in the room, he's like, I feel like we're married, but we haven't met yet. And it was like, oh, okay. And then we just sort of relaxed. That's amazing. Yeah, no, it's absolutely. Just to be clear, anybody listening, this is not how it happened. No, No, not at all. Did you know (laughs) that the one-man show was that powerful? Or were you thinking that it maybe still needed work? I mean, did did you know that it was that strong? Were you really happy with it? No, I was. I mean, mean, the thing that sort of happened is that I started in October of 2007. And when a when a when the junior and right around the same time I started, the junior senator of Illinois named Barack Hussein Obama said, "I think I want to run for president." So the show started to immediately track his run for president. Not immediately, but a few months in, started to track his run for president. And so the show kind of got more powerful and better because the stakes got higher, you know. And right. so by the time he won, the show sort of had like done this whole arc of like following this whole thing, and then you know. You know, but you know, uh, Alex Cole, who you know, Gary was there the night, and he said like people were crying at my show the night he went because it was this whole like celebration of this thing uh, when it was like the not the ninety one, but like three days later when I did the show, and I and so the bell curve taught me how to write faster, taught me how to write topically, it taught me how to not be afraid of doing new material because every show I would promise to do new stuff based on the news, and all that stuff made me a better comedian when I went back to the clubs. Well, people cry at Steve shows, but that's when they find out there's no refunds. Okay. <laughs> yep. Okay. Don't, I, I like how Kamau jabbed me with the new material stuff. I get it. I get it. Uh, yeah. I get it. Coles is old. I get it. What, what's up, Mervin? Classic. Come on. This is what I wanted to talk to mention before when you know uh, I lost my train of thought, but I, I I remembered it. So so with all the protests and the the kneeling and everything. Uh, Personally, I I thought I understand what Kaepernick's doing, and I appreciate, it, I respect it. And um, the issue I had was that, and I know he's done a lot of things within the community, but I felt like, and tell me if I'm wrong here, but I felt if if you're going to be a lightning rod, and and the purpose of it is to draw attention to inequality, police brutality, I personally felt why isn't he doing more to to reach out to officers reach out to the uh blue lives matter group and 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 start communicating you know if, if it really is about getting back to unity I, I i just didn't see him nor have i heard truly of any players and i could be totally wrong so correct me if i'm wrong i just personally haven't heard about it in the media where 
guys that are doing that are taking the initiative to bridge the gap? I mean, I think that, you know, I think Kaepernick is on his own journey here. And I, so I think, first of all, the, the, living in San Francisco, the first time he said the thing about, like, I'm not going to stand for the anthem, for most people, they're like, I've never heard him talk before. You know what I mean? Like, he was right. not... A, he was not a vocal guy. He was not a guy who was always, he was known as not a guy who did, who, he was not known as a guy who gave good interviews. And I think right. some of this is like, we've seen Kaepernick actually learn and evolve in real time, which is kind of a way as for, it should be a model for all of us, you know, because mm-hmm. as soon as people start to say, he's not doing anything, he's like, I'll give away a million dollars. Oh, okay. And he's also, the thing he's doing right now is reaching into his community. And I know he's spending a lot of time with activists and journalists like Sean King, uh, and a, another friend, another guy has name on camera right now, where he's actually learning. And I think that's the thing that people don't realize is that I believe that there is something more to come from him. But right now right. he's traveling around the country. He's gone to, I think he's gone to Africa. He's actually spending time learning so that when he does speak, if he, when he makes a big public thing, he'll know what he's talking about. So I think that who knows where this leads. But whenever I hear people say, why isn't he doing more? I always want to go, uh, what, what are you doing? <laughs> I feel right. Like yeah. This, I, I definitely about, think he's. And I, this is about all of us. Like I think that we all have to sort of. And I think that we can't. If we see him doing something that we think can be done better, then I think we have to go. Maybe I should be doing that. You know. What yeah. I, mean? I think he's doing a. I think he's. I think he's doing a courageous thing, and I think it's. It's going to be one of those things that, a decade, twenty years from now, people look back and go, "That was really a commendable, you know, thing." Where the country is going to really respect. I think right now it's. It is divisive because, like you said, it means different things to different people. But yeah, and let's also remember he's still, and I've, I know people who know him. He still wants to be an NFL quarterback. So he's still yeah. spending time, like actually training and staying in shape. So this is not a guy who's like gone full time activist in the way. Now, at some point, if he does, I mean, I think if we look up in 10, 20 years, it may be like, man, it's crazy that President Kaepernick used to play football. <laughs> like, we don't know where this leads. So I think that, like, what I do know is that, like, I thought once he was not in the league, that, he, that maybe the, the protests would die down, maybe he would be quieter, maybe he would become a footnote, but it's clear he's not becoming a footnote. He's becoming more important. And the fact is, you know, like it's like a, it's like when you're telling jokes on stage, the silence before the punchline, if you can extend that silence and the punchline is bigger. And right now, I feel like Kaepernick is extending the silence before he actually then says, here's what I'm here to do on a larger scale. But he is doing this. He has even called Know Your Rights Camp. Where he's going around talking to black young black people about how to deal with the cops, which to me is like that's super important. Yeah, I, I just think I think it is important to do those things. And I think it's uh I just think it's as important to if you're going to draw attention just personally, I, I would love to see him reach out to members in the police community. Uh, you know, there's a lot of African-American cops and, and and maybe align yourself or just start the communication. But for me, as a I guess, a fan of the movement, that's something where it's just like if you're going to go the distance, why not go the, all the way? That, that's just I mean, I think I, like I said, I think I don't know what he I don't want to speak for Kaepernick. I, I've never met him. I don't know him. You know, so I want to be clear about that. I know people who know him fairly well. Yeah. A lot of people. I A lot of the people who know who I know who know him are also people who believe that it's not about dealing. It's not about connecting with the police. It's about figuring out a way to completely dismantle the idea of what the police are in America and start over. Right. So I'd say that like some of those people may not be like go the idea of like if Kaepernick gets a photo gets a photo op with the cops, that means something to some people, but some people it means like, yo, oh, he just got bought off by the cops. <laughs> like it's just like, Right, right, I of course. Like, yeah. I think there is a thing where a lot of these people are like, it's not about like figuring out how to work with the current uh police. It's about figuring out how do we re reconceive the idea of what police do in communities. So I think some of that is like first he's I think it's the fact he's connecting with young black people who many of whom may not have role models and also 
are so blown away by the fact that he's doing this and doing all this charity and giving away stuff for free. For me, that seems like a really powerful thing. So. Well, I do want to ask you this, too, because we, you know, we are both in the minority camp. I'm, I'm half Asian. I'm Asian-American. And I, you know, there's people that don't, don't believe I'm Asian. And then or there's, a comic. Or a comic. Thank you, Gary. <laughs> and then there's, there's Asians, I learned when Sullivan and Son was on the air, that didn't, didn't think of me as being Asian because I'm what's known as a hapa. Yes. But the whole time I had the show on, I'm, I'm like in this weird kind of vacuum, I guess, where it, it wasn't accepted as an Asian American show. But the, the bigger, the macro issue for me was when I hear diversity or diversity is talked about in Hollywood, I feel like Hollywood has this perspective that that diversity is solely black because when yeah. you watch the Oscars, you watch the Emmys, uh, music awards, it, it, it's black artists, it's black actors and actresses, and there's never really a, a Latin contingent that's represented. There's not really an Asian contingent that's represented. Mm -hmm. um, and when I saw Rock, and I love Chris Rock, as every, yeah. every comic does, but when I saw him do that hack joke at the Oscars, it really kind of bummed me out, because especially at the time when... when if you remember at that time uh, during the Oscars, everything was like, w you know, the white lash or the or Oscars so white movement. Oscars so white, and yeah, yeah, yeah. it was a big thing. And I thought, geez, what a great moment to really uh, bridge the gap and and unify. And, and I felt like Chris was taking such a strong pro-black vision on yes, on the optics yeah. of the Oscars, where I felt yeah. kind of like left out because, like, when you say Rock will come and see you perform and and like get a show. Pat Morita can't come. <laughs> like I don't, I don't even know. Like who would be the well, Asian comic? Well, he's dead. <laughs> yeah, that, that would even have that that pull. There's mean he no show up, Gary. There's no lightning rod. But but I think when I think of diversity in Hollywood, I hear diversity constantly mentioned. I think Hollywood's optics are it is it is strictly black, and if we get five or six black people holding the trophy, we're good. And for me, as like someone who's viewed as an Asian-American, I, I view myself as an Asian-American, I just kind of feel let down by the community and I guess other minorities because I just feel like there should be a communal effort amongst everybody. But that's just my own personal take. What, what would your be? What would your take be on, on that perspective? I, mean, I, I do think that, like, you know, if for, especially for uh, black people of a, of, an, of a certain generation, like I'd say if you're, you know, 50 and older maybe or maybe it's 55 and older, I don't know. You, you have there. Those are people who grew up during the civil rights movement of the '60s. Right. And back then, diversity was certainly there was this idea: if we can get black people through the door, then everybody can get through the door. Like <laughs> I think there's a sense of like so that black people were sort of the battering ram for for justice. And I think right. that now that we're past that time, it's clear like yeah, we can't be thinking about it in that way. That's why you know I, I do agree with you that. I think that one thing I know about Chris is that he doesn't like to be predictable and he doesn't want to look like he's holding, carrying water for anybody. Whereas right. I don't mind, like I'm carrying water for people. I don't <laughs> mind. Now, now our bank accounts show that he's probably more right than I am. If we're <laughs> uh, so, but I would say that like that he, so I think that when I saw jokes like that, I'm like, Oh, he's trying to make sure people don't think he's just here to rep for black people. You know what I mean? Right. Uh, and so, I, but it doesn't mean, yeah, certainly I saw that joke and I was like, oh, <laughs> I, I was like, here comes Twitter. Asian Twitter's about to weigh in. Uh, and so, yeah, but I also think Chris doesn't mind that. I think he's sort of a person who doesn't mind, like, like you know, getting slings and arrows. Well, out I think, but, I think, like, if you do trash Asians, there really is no blowback. If you trash 
a, a black celebrity or, you know, a, a prominent black figure, I think, there is going to be some backlash. You could lose your show if you said something. I mean, look at Paula Dean. Yeah. She lost her show and she was getting mugged. And Roy Wood had a great joke about it. But I feel like there's no backlash. Like No, I think that's true. The thing that I'm trying to do is that sense. And I think the woman who created Oscar Sorite, April Rain, the one who created the hashtag, that hashtag was not supposed to be about black versus white. It was supposed to be about inclusion in general. Yeah. And I think if she had, if she could do it all over again, she would figure out a way to make it not just white. It'd be Oscar's so white man and able, able-bodied heterosexual white man. You know what I mean? Like I think that like, <laughs> you, it's like it's really about the fact that like there's not you know if there's not enough Asian people, there's not enough Latino people, there's not enough South Asian people, there's not enough disabled people. There's you know there's all these groups that are excluded from that night. And I think that, yeah, I think that I'm very aware now that when I sort of go out and I talk about this stuff, I have to be using language that sounds like I'm not just talking about black people. And then, but then there becomes times where, yes, now I am just talking about black people for this specific thing. But yes, I think that I do, I agree with you that the the new, younger, sexier millennial movement, it's not even millennials, it's people basically 40 and under or, or 45 and under to include myself, uh, is like about we have to we have to be always thinking about how to make the tent bigger because if we just if we just add people who don't if we just get a group together of people who are like uh, I'm I'm happy I don't like I'm not a, I don't care if you're gay but I'm happy if you're gay I'm happy for black I'm happy for Latino I'm happy if you're Asian and I want all those people I'm like well my friends are all like that that's more than the people who voted for Trump but unfortunately we don't align ourselves in that way this, uh, enough but I think that going forward I believe that's the direction we're going yeah. I, I will say there is a huge negative about being an overweight middle-aged white guy because for the, over the years, <laughs> over the years, and you two guys can call it whatever you want, being in the minority section, but I never got to do Comics Unleashed. And so I think <laughs> I think for me, I never got to be part of that where Byron Allen threw me a fake setup. I feel like we could book that on this phone call. We can make that happen. <laughs> you don't think I struggle pretty, with that every sure day? That, I'm pretty sure they're grabbing people off the streets at this point. Knowing Stephanie Blum did that, Joe? <laughs> <laughs> An aunt? <laughs> exactly. So then what – So you, but, but just to rewind a little bit in your relationship with Chris, you go out there, you get this FX show. How quickly do you move? How quickly do you showcase that one-man show? And then how quickly are you – in New York doing your own show? Uh, I mean, so Chris, I think I was doing, I keep doing the math on this. So Chris saw the show in 2010. I'm trying, this is a, like my math gets all crazy here. Yes, he saw it in 2010. Uh, my daughter, and then, and then he, like that's, we sort of worked, he went to Broadway and did his thing. Uh, we did a pilot with me and my friends and another and this guy who ended up being the showrunner did a pilot in that summer of 2011. Then Chris put money to a pilot the fall of 2011, and then FX decided to make it a show February 2012, and then by August or you know end of August, early September, we were on the air. So the show I started the show 2007, but from the time Chris saw it in 2010, it was like two years away from actually premiering. Oh wow. And, yeah. and then what what so basically then FX says, hey, we want to bring it from a weekly show to a daily show. And that was kind of where <laughs> and there was then a we bump. all said, how about a never show? <laughs> how about it never airs again? Yeah, no, we were. I mean, I think if FX had to do it all over again and if I had to do it all over again, I would have I felt like I was sort of in the FX army and they said, now it's daily. OK, sir. Right. I think everybody knows. And that was that it just it put too much pressure on it. We were still getting our sea legs. When I look at people like John Oliver and Samantha Bee, 
it's like I wish I'd had five or six years in the John Stewart training camp before I went to my own show. Because the things I look at that show that I wasn't able to do well, or either, I was like I was learning in real time, and I wish I'd had time to go to like John Stewart Academy to really get all that to get myself together. Because I look at those shows, and I'm like, yeah, they. I'm not jealous at all. I'm happy for those shows. I kind of feel like totally biased. If anything, sort of help open the door for like it doesn't have to just be John Stewart, you know? Yeah. Well, uh, I, I, I wouldn't. I, I think what I appreciate about your show is that you had like, like for example, like Jim Norton debating Lindy West. Yes. Which I was. I, I found that interview fascinating, but it was also like knowing Norton and how well versed he was. I was, you know, I was like, I, I don't know, what I'd get in the ring with Norton even as a comic myself. But I yeah. thought that again, it was like moments like that that spurred debate, and obviously some awful things happened in, in the aftermath to, to to her in terms like online and all that stuff. But, but uh, I feel like yeah, and I, but I, we talked to Lindy about that because she knew that that was coming. She was yeah. not like she was like and this was the, and also to give her credit, that was the first time she'd ever been on TV. And I mm. and I and and so I feel like if anybody thinks she didn't do well, it's because yeah, it was again, it was her first time. I think if, if they did round two, which I don't think she would ever do, just <laughs> doing other things, I think she would. She, I I thought she did great that night, especially because it was the first time she'd ever been on TV. But I think she, I, I feel happy about the fact that we were that that show again. It's about the inclusion piece. It was one of the gave her her first shot on TV, and we did that for a lot of people. We gave them their first shot, you know, like or we gave them a lot of reps. Like my friend Hardy Kondabolu, you know, got a lot of TV reps on that show, and you know, and uh, Guy Branham has his, has a show on True TV, not True, yeah, True TV. So it's like I really feel like it, we were trying to do the thing I was saying about earlier. Like it wasn't just a black and white show. I didn't want it just to be about like a black guy has a show. I think a lot of times. The moment a black person gets a show like that, it becomes the black show. I think that, you know, like the like the nightly show. I think it's like it becomes a thing where it's like it's about the blackness as opposed to for me. It was like I don't it can be about that sometimes, but I want to make sure that it's about the fact that it's about the people who it's about the people who feel like they're not getting their a fair shake. And that's more than just black people, as we talked about earlier. Yeah, I was curious. What, what, why do you think that the Larry Wilmore show is short lived? You know, I, I, I the funny thing about that. As soon as Trevor Noah got a show, yeah. got the Daily Show, I was like, I don't think Comedy Central ever meant to go black to black. <laughs> <laughs> like, I just felt like at that moment, I was like, yo, <laughs> right? They're basically now not that they shouldn't have done that, but I felt like they're basically now gonna have to pick a black guy because just because that's it's the same thing you were saying, uh, we talked about earlier, Steve, some version of that. Like, then it makes it look like they are doing it on purpose, which is not bad, but there's something I'm sure there's many about like. Wait a minute, people are gonna think we're BET, and I think not that that's bad, <laughs> but I knew they were like that in their conception. They don't they don't mind going, you know, white guy to white guy, but black guy to black guy. I felt like they're like they're this is like the battle of the black guys now, which is unfortunate that it happened. I wish the nightly show was still on the air. I had I knew a lot of people worked on that show. A lot of people from Totally Bias worked on that show, mm -hmm. but I knew that that was like we're not at a place in society where that doesn't where to some people that doesn't look weird or to people in power that and I'm not. I'm not blaming. I don't know how they did it, but I certainly was like, this was not the plan. Well, is there a better time, though? You know, great writing, any any screenplay, any scene, it needs drama. And there's plenty to draw from these days, I think. as a, is there Has there ever been a better time to be a black comic in America than right now? Because <laughs> of all this shit, that, it's like... Every day there's something. I, I mean, how do you go after Curry uh, on the Warriors? The guy has got a great reputation, great dude, everything you hear off the court. Uh, he's a winner. I, I don't understand, like, how, even in that moment, you're going after that guy, and there's a multitude of other things. 
is there are you just running are you like running out of ink and paper it's gonna be crazy for you right i mean i think i think you know it, i think the thing about this time it is there is a lot of there you know there is a lot of material but i think a little bit that it's like the gold rush there's so much that the danger is that you pick up something that you think is real and like oh, i got a rock because there's so much going on right now and also the news cycle is so quick that like you, if you write it if trump tweets out something crazy at nine in the morning and you spend all day working on a joke about it. By the evening, everybody's done some version of that joke, and you wasted your day. You know yeah. what I mean? So it's like for me, it's like really you got to be careful. Like I will make fun of tw- Trump tweets on Twitter, but I'm not going to actually invest in like I'm going to write a bit about this tweet. You know what I mean? Like that's the that's the part that's dangerous. Everybody is. I feel like everybody is funnier now. In the election of Trump, every people who like him are funnier. People who hate him are funnier. And so therefore, <laughs> those of us who are the comedians have to really be like. Those of us who are comedians who are trying to engage in topical, relevant material have to be careful about what we pick up because the thing you spend all the time working on it could be dead soon. Like, you know, think about all the people who probably had a great Sean Spicer eight minutes. Or the mooch. It's the yeah, mooch. Yeah. I thought this. I was, yeah, I was still working on that material. He was gone. Yeah. Well, Anthony Weiner just got just got uh, arrested, or he's going to be going yeah. to jail for twenty one months. Unbelievable. Yeah. That's a great example of like you better be on TV tonight to do Anthony right. Weiner jokes because by the weekend they're over. Well, like, and you know, listen, that's why I don't write. It's just not worth it. It's just not. <laughs> it's not worth the aggravation. There's no way. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, you can't keep up. That's no. Right. <laughs> Come on. I want to ask you one when. when Election night, were you shocked at all by those results, by by the fact that Trump won? I know everybody that's a bleeding heart liberal, you know, was was assured that they, they were almost like Hillary's going to win. There's no way that guy's going to win. Were you shocked at all? Uh, I mean, no, I wasn't. I was saddened, but I was not shocked. Mm-hmm. Me and a friend of mine, Adam Mansbach, the guy, he wrote the book, uh, Go the Fuck to Sleep. Um, he's another Berkeley resident. We wrote an article for Slate like a year or so before, mm-hmm. talking about uh, talking about the the talking about hey, basically white people get ready for Trump, or you, it's on you to get rid of him. Like because we had all these white liberal friends who were like, I don't even like to say his name out loud. I don't want to give him the power. I have a filter on Facebook that takes his name. You know all those people, right? Yeah. And it was like you better you better pay attention because he's coming. And, and so, <laughs> and because I travel around the country, and I you right. know I think the United States of America through being a stand up and performing at colleges, it's like I'm very aware that I, I live in Berkeley. That's a very special, protected snowflake space, and most of the country is not that. And I was also aware that like, you know, people t- forget how much hatred there is for the Clintons out there. And I don't mean just from the right. I mean I got. From the left, people who are like, I don't trust those people. I don't like those people. And so it wasn't like she was some perfect candidate. So I think those two factors, and also the Electoral College, I mean, it was like, it was, I wasn't, I was bummed, but I wasn't shocked, you know. Well, um, since you are up up there at Berkeley with everything that's going on with this, uh, I, I, you know, I'm reading up on the free speech movement on campuses where, you know, liberal folks are a little more, uh, they get a, I guess, a pass on these campuses. Whereas, if you're a Ben Shapiro, who, uh, you know, I've seen some clips of him online. He doesn't seem to be. He seems to be more somebody who's based in statistics as opposed to, um, you know, uh, putting forth a real agenda that may may be construed as negative. Uh, when when this guy's getting backlash, how do you feel about the current state of like? "Quote unquote," I guess, diversity of mind on on campuses. I, you know, the, the, let's be clear about it. people. I think people are really looking at this in a very micro way. Mm-hmm. Like, the, like Berkeley is just a college. It's not. 
a liberal, it's not like this particularly liberal college. It turns out engineers, doctors, business people, and lawyers. It's not, you know, people want to make it like Berkeley's like the, like the, like the musical hair university, you know, like it's, <laughs> it's, you know, it's like, it's got, it's got a football team. It's got a basketball team. I don't walk, you don't walk through the, the campus of Berkeley going, man, everybody's smoking weed and just chilling out. It's a very rigorous academic institution. Right. One of the professors there, one of the law professors there is a guy named John Wu, who was the guy who wrote the George W. Bush torture memo, who, who, who outlined why uh, waterboarding was okay, basically. You know, just like it's wow. now, you know, and so he spoke recently and somebody, a few people showed up to say, we don't like you either, but he's been at the university for years. Right. And I think that people... I think that really, I think what's happened is that people like Milo and Aunt Coulter, because Berkeley has this reputation for free love and all that kind of nonsense, they've put it on the university, and really it doesn't belong there. And so I think, one, they're not doing their research. That school turns out Asian engineers. Not to profile, but, you know, uh, but it's, like it's, a, it's a very rigorous school. And so I think that what Berkeley is saying is like, hey, come in and give your speech, but do not stop our students from getting the class. And I think a lot of what's happened is with like Milo is that he brings an element of chaos with him and he encourages an element of chaos. And then Coulter's like, I like to be relevant. Can I bring some chaos? And so suddenly they're encouraging this element of chaos that often breeds violence. And the university is like, we'll bring you here to speak, but we don't need chaos and violence. And I think that's the problem. And as I, I have a joke that I've been doing for a while, maybe it won't be relevant soon, doesn't it? but the idea that like, you know, if you're going to bring an element of chaos and violence, then you also need to travel with security. Like, you also need to bring people with you who can help stem from your team who help stem the chaos, chaos and violence. And so, the idea being that, like, Louis Farrakhan used to travel around the country saying things that created chaos and violence for some people, but he traveled with security. And so, I feel like and then the joke was like, so Milo and Ann Coulter just hire the Nation of Islam. <laughs> but, you know, you can, <laughs> <laughs> you can travel the country with them and let me film it for my next show. I, I but, hate to uh, bring this up, but we have a similar joke. I was going to do great. that on Comics Unleashed. <laughs> yeah, great minds. But, but so, the idea is that I think that, you know, when you, so now you take somebody like Ben Shapiro, who often, I haven't heard him a lot, but he often says, I'm not one of those people. But the problem is, is that the chaos and violence is now following people. It's just because they're yeah. identified with those people. And so I just feel like then, therefore, you get to be Ben Shapiro. And it's like, then it becomes on some level, like if, if chaos and violence was following me as I did college campuses, I would understand they're like, yeah, come on, we can't have you speaking anymore. But it doesn't follow me. And, and if it does start to follow me, I'll understand why they stopped booking me or I'll start to hire more security. I think the problem is, is that Milo and Coulter, I don't know about Ben Shapiro, I haven't looked him up enough, but they don't want to take credit for that chaos and violence that they're bringing with, the, the chaos that they're bringing that, that starts the that it sort of invites the violence. Um, you know, speaking of Coulter, I, I don't know that she incites violence. I, I definitely think Not she incites. It's the, it's the chaos. It, it, I mean, yeah, in her yeah. in her wake, I I agree with that. I think she likes to be almost. You know, I think she likes to be shocking, and that's keeping her relevant. But when I when I saw that last Comedy Central roast, I think it was Rob Lowe, and Ann Coulter was a guest on there, and you had comics calling her a cunt. You should kill yourself. <laughs> I was like, look. I'm a comic too, and I yeah. get it, and maybe not the biggest fan of some of the things she says, but I was like, I think this is part of the reason why this country is so divisive. When you have a platform to be humorous, but you, I, I just felt like that was that was like really exceedingly like you couldn't put Lena Dunham on a stage 
and oh, do the no. same thing to her because <laughs> that's Hollywood's golden child. And if you said the same thing to her, you would never work in this town again. And I like I don't yeah, know, that's wh- somebody's grandma. Yeah, yeah. What, what was your take on? But also, Lena Dunham would never show up. <laughs> <laughs> in fairness, Ann Coulter was do, promoting the book. Let's be clear; they would do some version of that. She'd get hit with a lot of girls' jokes and a lot of like that. You know, she'd be hit with a lot of stuff. You know, so I think that for me, I've just to be, I, you know, I feel like Comedy Central. I'm saying a lot of things about it. I've never been a fan of the roast show. <laughs> the roast shows, like I've never gone to one. I've right. Never because I think the whole thing is like for me I'm not saying I mean you know Jeff Ross is, is great at it but for me it's like it just seems like it invites that kind of that kind of like dark yeah who, who can go as far who can go as who can go where's too far and let's see who can go past too far you know we had I was gonna back on totally bias we had Sarah Silverman on the show talking about how after the roast she always has this lay in bed for two days and recover because wow, it can yeah. get so brutal and I, for me it's like I got enough of that just walking around being afraid the cops are going to kill me. Like, I don't right. need to, like, bring it in for fun. But yeah, I, you know, I think that, you know, I, I, I you know, I have to believe on some level that Ann Coulter knew what she was signing up for. And also, yeah, we only, we, Ann Coulter's only made more relevant by being invited to places like that. Yeah. And she did have a book out. She was promoting, she was promoting that's the book. Exactly. That's why she was there. She really plugging there. the book. Yeah. I'd, I'd love to know how sales were. I think she got yeah. more returns than sales after that appearance. But uh, but I think, yeah, I think that she's on. She's, that's the thing we have to realize. This is the, all these people like, you know, Ann Coulter. I mean, Glenn Beck, like Glenn Beck and Rush Limbaugh came out of drive time morning radio. You know what I mean? These yeah. All these people are entertainers first. And I think Ann Coulter is a great example of that. That like none of the alt-right movement claims her. She's trying to claim them. Yeah, and, and by the way, you have a brand new show coming out on A and E too, right? Oh, uh, the, the documentary? No, I don't. Don't talk well, about no, that. The, I, thought the, I thought the Culture Shock show. <laughs> no, that we can't. That, oh, is that has that been announced? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, okay, yeah. yeah I'm, uh, I'm, I'm directing my first documentary. I didn't. That's funny. I didn't know that it had been announced. I'm directing my first documentary, uh, courtesy of Morgan Spurlock. Who who directed your Showtime special? Who directed my Showtime? That's special. absolutely did, uh, awesome. Morgan Spurlock refuses for me to be unemployed. He keeps giving me things. To that's do. great. Did Chris Rock go to Chick Fil A with Morgan Spurlock by chance? And <laughs> <laughs> come out. We cannot thank you enough for taking time out of your day. We really appreciate it, man. Continued success to you. We're big fans. Emmy here. Award winner. And by Emmy the way, Award winner. Yeah, a writer who I knew from San Francisco, another comic who wrote on Kamau's show, then went to John Oliver, also won an Emmy. Couple weeks ago, for his work on John Oliver, so yeah, he's got two. Kevin, he's got Kevin two. Irving, he's got two now. Yeah, wow. Yeah. wow. He can yeah, definitely co-feature on the road now. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Tommy T's. We come. Tommy T's. Well, congratulations. And when are, when are you guys starting to shoot uh, your documentary, the A and E show? Uh, we've already shot it. We're actually towards the end of it. Where oh, wow. I have to do, yeah, you know, we're so yeah. I'm really excited about it. It's my first time directing, which I said to my wife, if I can direct documentaries, I can work till I'm 80. And I was like, why am I excited about that? <laughs> <laughs> then I can do cruise ships. Yeah, great. Yeah. Well, congrats, pal. Yeah, I'm super excited for you. Continued success. United Shades of America on CNN uh, and all your success. I, I've known you for a long time, Kamau. It couldn't be any happier for you and your family and for everything that you've done. And congratulations, bud. And it was great talking to you. Thank you for calling into our show. Where do you see your Twitter numbers go down? <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for doing this. And, I really, and Steve, it was really nice to finally meet you in uh, Montreal. And thanks for inviting me on the show. Absolutely. Pleasure talking to you and can't wait to the next time, bud. Yeah, no problem. Right. And uh, your, whatever your co-host name is, he seems nice too. <laughs> He's not. He's okay. He's not. <laughs> okay. All right. Thanks for calling in, Kamau.
No problem. Take care, bud. Bye. There he is, W. Kamal Bell, Emmy Award winner, host of United Shades of America on CNN. Oh, oh whoa, 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 whoa. I'm so bummed. Uh, Patrick actually wanted me to ask a question when you were talking about race relations with Kamau. He wants to know, is does Kamau like Fig Newtons? And is it pronounced Kamau or Kamau? <laughs> Bombing. Bombing. Ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> wow. This has been the Gentleman's Dojo. Rate and review us. Oh, we got T-shirts, Steve. We got T-shirts. We got T-shirts. You, you want rate an official Dojo T-shirt? Then you rate and review us. Rate and review us. You send your address and shirt size to Gary Cannon at Cannon Comedy. We on don't Twitter. need the shirt size, Stephen. We only have one size. I don't know. <laughs> you only have one size. Uh, but get get your address and, and shirt size to Gary on Twitter, and they can find you at Cannon Comedy. And you can find me at Steve Byrne Live. Thank you for listening to the Dojo. Patrick Keen will be back with us down the road.